All right, guys. Uh, so apologize ahead of time. Uh, we're taking a step back into the 1990s. There's not, not going to be anything on the screens. You're going to have to look at paper or you do have your phone still. Um, and, and to begin with, I, I want to kind of hit on those same themes that Brian is uh, every, every time of the five main themes that we see through the book of Acts and just briefly how we see that in this particular passage. Um, again, we don't have it with the little fill in the blanks on there, so I'm just going to spoil it for you. It's the work of the Holy Spirit, witnessing for Christ, devotion of the church, history of salvation, and evangelizing the nation. So real quick, in this passage, uh, one of the ways we, the Holy Spirit isn't really explicitly mentioned by name a ton. Actually, I don't think at all. Um, I could be wrong on that, so don't quote me or call me a heretic if I'm wrong on that. Um, but I, I think I didn't see the Holy Spirit mentioned by name in that passage. Um, but it's implicit all over. Uh, and we'll, we'll see that here in just a second. Witnessing for Christ, obviously, I mean, that's pretty much what this passage is all about. Witnessing for a Christ, evangelizing the nations kind of go hand in hand. Of course, we're seeing the, the history of salvation. And the devotion of the church is also in there as well. There's some, uh, we'll see that in a couple of the later points. It doesn't explicitly say here in Acts how, what was going on in Paul's heart and mind, but we get a little bit of, of a glimpse of that in Thessalonians. Uh, well, Paul's heart for the church, wanting to make sure that they're remaining faithful to the message that he preached. And so we'll go back and take a look at that. But real quick, I want us to go to the map. I, the, Brian going through these maps has been super, super helpful for me to kind of visualize that. Um, kind of a, a confession. I, I don't really know that I've, I've looked at maps in the back and I'm like, oh, that's nice. That, but I never associated it before, like with uh, as I'm reading through the passage. And it's been really, really helpful. So go to the, it's map four, I think. It's, uh, yeah, map in the back. I made a, a note of which one it is. But now I can't see it, so well, let me see. I'll, I'll find it. I think it's, yeah, map four. It is map four. And I just want us to, to trace through that. So we're starting in Thessalonica. If you guys can find that, it's over in the Macedonia area. And then he goes down to Berea, and then down to Athens. And then he goes over to Corinth. And then after that, he heads over... To, to Antioch. And so that's the path that he's taking. And cool. There's a, and there's a, a lot of cool themes in here. I'm probably going to really emphasize this first one. And this is going to bring me to the first point is God has proven who Jesus is through the scriptures. God has proven who Jesus is through the scriptures. So as we, we get started... And starting in 17.2, I just wanted to point out some what the scriptures say there. Paul went in, and as was his custom, so this is what he normally did, three Sabbaths, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And then later on, in uh, 17.11, in the Bereans, it says, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So this was the model of how Paul did evangelism. And yes, I'm going to kind of go ahead, a rebuttal to this, because we're going to address it, is 
yeah, but those are Jews. They understood the scriptures and yes and amen to that. And, and they had that context. And that's why it looks a little bit different. What we'll talk about when he's addressing the Athenians. Um, but this is the standard model of what Paul did. And this is so powerful. Like how often in your own presentation of the gospel or when you're talking about Jesus, why they should put their faith in Jesus, are you directing them not just to, I think people don't, connect this. They're not talking about in the New Testament scriptures where it says that Jesus is the only way of salvation. They're talking about where Jesus was talked about in the Old Testament. So, so think about how powerful this would be. Like, would you believe me uh, that I say, okay, I'm going to prove to you. Oh, sorry. Let me not knock this down. I'm going to prove to you that God is speaking through me. All right. You're going to go to the city of Atlanta and you're going to meet a guy there He's 6'9", so he's going to be hard to miss. He's going to be reading, uh, wearing a red shirt, size 15 shoes. His name is Sam. His wife's Anisha, and he drives a Ford Fusion 2015. Probably needs to get a new car. Would you have any doubt about the identity of who that, like, when you actually met me in person, like, say you were moving from a different city, would you have any doubt about who I am? God's done that with such specificity. And I want us to, and the reason this is so powerful, like a lot of people say, I would believe in God if I could witness one of these miracles of him raising from the dead or like causing a fire to rain from heaven or like, you know, or healing the blind. I don't think that's actually true. Like imagine if that were to happen and someone immediately, and especially in our culture of YouTube and, and effects on TV, it would immediately be called into question the legitimacy of it. People wouldn't really believe it. And that's why I actually think Scripture is so much more powerful than that, or even a personal experience. Because there is no doubt about what God wrote hundreds, thousands of years before Jesus ever entered. So we can go and see, and that's what we're going to do here in just a second. We can go and see what God actually said. And some of us, I think, have probably have heard this before, and I remember, and I'll talk about my story as well as how I came to Christ. And like, yeah, but are these like kind of like psychic, you know, tarot card stuff that's super vague or like, you know, Nostradamus type of stuff that you can really make mean whatever you want. And some things in the Old Testament, you could make an argument like this is kind of vague and, and it's a little bit esoteric. But there's other passages, and this is one of the, the ones we'll go and read here in just a second, that there is no mistake. I mean, there is absolutely no mistake. And this absolutely should be part of how we go and, and witness to other people as well. And uh, I'll make a comment just jumping ahead. On the Athenians, Paul didn't start with the scriptures, but you better believe that eventually he gave them that context. And he rooted them in the scriptures. And he showed the reason that we know this is true is because God told us beforehand. So I want us to go to a passage. Um, if you go on your phones or if you have the old school you know, paper and ink, um, go to Isaiah 48 first. Isaiah 48. I want us, so God has memorialized a miracle in the scriptures that we can go back and witness at any point in time, and there's no question about it. In a little context in the book of Isaiah, written about 700 to 800 years before Jesus was born, we have a copy of the book of Isaiah from the Dead Sea Scrolls from the second century BC. So a couple hundred years before Jesus even arrived on the scene. Um, we actually have a physical copy of it. Um, so there's no doubt about like, that this was written before Jesus was born. But this passage isn't specifically uh, talking about Jesus. It's giving us context for what we're about to read. Isaiah 48, 
verses 3 through 8. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Again, don't call me a heretic. It's, it'll be all right. Um, Long ago, I told you what was going to happen, and then suddenly I took action, and all my predictions came true. For I know how stubborn and obstinate you are. Your necks are un- unbending as iron, and your heads are hard as bronze. That's why I told you what would happen. I told you beforehand what I was going to do. Then you could never say, my idols did it. My wooden image and metal God commanded it to happen. You have heard my predictions and seen them fulfilled, but you refuse to admit it. Now I will tell you new things, secrets you have not yet heard. They are brand new, not things from the past, so that you cannot say we knew them all, all the time. Yes, I will tell you things that are entirely new, things you have never heard before. For I know so well what traitors you are, and you have been rebels from birth. So what's so cool about this passage isn't the part about us being traitors and rebels. That's, you know, that's not that part. But um, God's essentially saying, look, I know how you are. I know how hard-headed, hard-hearted you are. That's why I tell you what I'm going to do before it happens. And look, I'm about to tell you something brand new. I'm about to give you clarity on something that you've never heard before. And that's where he goes into what are called the servant songs. And there's four servant songs where he talks about Jesus specifically. So God's basically puffing out his chest like, look, I'm going to tell you about my servant that's going to come. That way, when it happens, you'll have no doubt. You'll know that I'm God. You'll know that I have breathed out these scriptures and that this is the way and that he is the one that you need to look to. So I want us to read, uh, again, this will be from the New Living Translation for me, one of the most famous passages of scripture and just listen to how specific and detailed and just it, it just hit me. I remember, I'll explain my experience. It hit me like a ton of bricks when I read this for the first time. So it's Isaiah uh, 52, starting in verse 13. I'm going to read the whole thing. I plan to read the whole thing if I can get there. <laughs> Give me a second, guys. I'm struggling with, uh, there we go. All right. See, my servant will prosper, will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence for what they have, what they will see, for they will see what they had not been told and they will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message and to whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be made whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before its shears, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream, but he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. 
He had done no wrong. He had never deceived anyone, but he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier, because he exposed himself to death. And he was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for the rebels. And even reading that, I get so emotional. So a little context. I grew up, I had a lot of doubts growing up. Um, and I was out of church most of my life. And uh, I remember when we moved to Alabama from Washington State when I was nine, we started going to a local church. And I had a ton of like, how do we know this is true? How do I know that Jesus really is the Son of God? I, I, I thought I kind of wanted to believe, but I wasn't willing to give my life to something that I didn't know. There's so many other religions, all claiming to have the, the source of truth. And I you know, believe this because of where I was born. And whenever I would ask someone in that context, at least what I remember, maybe po- people pointed it to me, but I just don't remember. It's like, well, I just know in my heart of hearts it's true. I just, I just know they're pointing to their own experience. And, and I always say this, like Tom Cruise knows in his heart, heart of hearts that Scientology is the way. Yeah. And so that is not a good explanation. Like, and I remember it was around the time of the left behind books and all that craziness, you know, prophecy about the end times kind of intrigued me. I wouldn't say I was really fully following Christ at all. Um, I had a lot of doubts. And like I said, my life really revolved around basketball at the time. That was my idol. That was what I really worshiped. Um, but I was interested in that. And I remember it was around the time the internet first came out. Um, and I was on Alta Vista search engine, not Google. Google was just in its infancy. I don't even know if it was around then. And I typed in Jesus Christ prophecy uh, in a search engine on a whim because I expected to hear about some of the Armageddon type stuff. And what came up were these prophecies. And I heard the st- statistic, there's over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament uh, about, about Jesus Christ and, and his first coming. And I was like, okay, like, what do these actually say? Like, is it like vague stuff that I can really make say whatever I want? And I remember reading Isaiah 53 by myself in front of the computer screen. And I just started crying. It's like, oh my gosh, this is true. This is true. Jesus Christ really is the son of God. He really did die on the cross for our sins. He really did rise again the third day. And it really is only by trusting and believing in him, repenting of our sins, that we can have eternal life. And those who don't, eternal death is a real thing. He is our only hope. And all of a sudden it went from being the story like Santa Claus. It wasn't really true. It was like a fairy tale. Like, I don't care if I ever play basketball again. I found something so much greater. My life now has meaning and purpose. And and that's, that's why this concept of going back and proving that Jesus is the Christ from the scriptures is so powerful. So many times we just tell people to believe in Jesus because we feel it or just because we're not giving them a reason. But that's not the model of the New Testament. 
That's not the model that's laid out from, from Acts. God told us what he was going to do in the person of Jesus hundreds, thousands of years ago so that we could know without, with absolute certainty. So that when things happen like, what about evolution? Are we really just grown-up germs that evolved from an amoeba? And are, are, in, you know, are young earth creationists, old earth creationists? Look, I wasn't there and I don't know. What I do know is God wrote this before Jesus ever showed up, and that doesn't happen unless this is real. I, th- that doesn't happen unless it's real. What about when my dad got terminal cancer? And at the time, he's an unbeliever. I'm like, is, is God real then? Yes. I remember specifically in some of the hardest times, I know people talk about the Psalms and how comforting they are to them, and they are. But what gives the Psalms substance and bite is a passage like this, like, is this true? Is this really true? Does this really define reality? And oftentimes, the most difficult times in my life, I've gone back to this passage and I read that to remind myself, to go and witness that miracle yet again. Yes. Yes, it is true. And I don't know why this is all happening with my dad. I don't know why this is happening in the world. But I know that Jesus is the Son of God, that he did die on the cross for my sins. And I know he is sovereign. I am not. And I know I can trust him. And so that is why this is so, so powerful. And, I, and, and if you haven't gone back and studied those things in depth, then do. And so it will strengthen your faith. Um, and that's why I'm so, so passionate about it. Let's go on to the next point. Uh, I'd only have like 12 minutes left. So um, the success of God's mission rests on God, not on man. So this is the part I talked about. We see a little bit of this in Thessalonians. So if you caught it, Paul travels to Athens. He leaves Timothy and Silas back behind. And then they, he, they come and join him in Corinth, I believe. And it doesn't say this in Acts, but we get this from 1 Thessalonians 3. I'm going to go try to see if I can find it here. And I'll read it. 1 Thessalonians 3, 1 through 2. Finally, when we could stand it no longer, we decided to stay alone in Athens. And we sent Timothy to visit you. He is our brother and God's co-worker in proclaiming the good news. Uh of Jesus Christ, and we set him to strengthen you, so to encourage you in your faith. So Paul went, and he planted these churches. He goes to Athens, and he begins to get concerned. <clears throat> He's not there anymore, and he goes back, and Timothy and Silas were gone, and he goes back to find that God has been working in that church apart from Paul and apart from Timothy. The success of God's mission didn't rest in Paul and his personality. It rests in God's spirit. And that, again, that's the theme that we see throughout this. And, and you'll see that all around. I mean, Paul goes and he starts a big thing, and, but he's, he's not the personality that it revolves around. It's Jesus. It's Jesus, and Jesus is at work. And it, it reminds me of the, the passage also in Philippians. Um, he who began a good work out, and you will bring it to completion. And then also, uh, for God is working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's spirit is real, and it, whenever we follow the will of God, whenever we're following after Christ, that is not you ultimately who is responsible for that. It's God's grace to you, causing you to be conformed into the image of his Son, which he has promised to all those who are in Christ.
And so I want us to see that in, the, in this passage as well. And it reminds me too of the passage in, 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 uh, in Corinthians where he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gives the increase. So we can go out and we can be faithful in proclaiming the, and the, the good news of Christ, knowing that it's God who's ultimately responsible for giving the increase. And it's not our, our cunning, it's not our uh, winsomeness, how great of a speaker we are. God is faithful and he, uh, he this is such a, a Southern thing, but he draws straight lines with crooked sticks, you know? Um, but it's true, uh, it, he, God uses imperfect people to accomplish his will. So I want us to see that. Now I want us to go and, and look and talk about Athens as well. So Paul didn't, didn't start with the scriptures there. And the reason why, they didn't really have a context for that. Like, if they started like, hey, go look in the book of Isaiah, and they're like, like, what are you talking about? You know, they don't have that context. But point number three, I want you guys to go ahead and fill the blanks here, is Paul met people where they were at. I know that's a lot of words to put in that blank. He met people where they were at. He affirmed what was good and clearly corrected what was not. So one thing about this passage, I think that probably would make a lot of people that are really, you know, uh, really big and rightfully so about adhering to scripture. And I think it would make them feel uncomfortable, almost feel like Paul may have gotten criticized by some people in our own day for like, that's borderline heretical. You're pointing to a, a statue that's to the unknown God, and then you're connecting that to the real God. And did that make anyone else a little uncomfortable at all as you're like reading that? Because it was like, whoa, like, but Paul, he's affirming, he's walking that line of affirming what's right and what's good. But he's not a Joel Osteen saying like, God loves you just the way you are and you can remain just the way you are and you're awesome. You deserve it. He's not like, he's not giving that message. He's saying like, God's called all men everywhere to repent. And he's appointed a man, Jesus Christ, on whom he's going to judge the entire world. And he's proven this by raising him from the dead. And, uh, and so he corrects where they're errant in their theology, their understanding, but he does affirm what's correct. So he, he uh, kind of compliments them, say, hey, I see that you're very religious. You have a desire to worship and you are made to pursue God. Yes, and amen to all those things. Here's where I want to redirect that is that God did, isn't served by human. He doesn't need anything from us. And there's not one, there's one God that made everything. And he's not some far off God that we can't know. He's near to any of you. And, and is actually just through repentance and faith, you can enter into a relationship with him. And so he, and that's a, a, a kind of a mo, another model for us as we're interacting with people who are, um, who are unbelievers, that we should look like, one, know your audience and, and know, like, hey, what can we affirm that's right and good and in line with, with God uh, and what they're doing and not just say, like, you're completely wrong. Because um, that's what Paul did there. I mean, but at the same time, he didn't, he didn't hold anything back. And just, I don't know how familiar you are with, uh, kind of, it mentioned the Epicureans and the Stoics just to give a little context on who they are. Uh, Epicureans believe that the goal of human life was to achieve happiness and inner peace through the avoidance of pain and the pursuit of pleasure, particularly through simple pleasures such as friendship, freedom, and tranquility. It wasn't necessarily like some debauchery type thing, but that their thing was trying to avoid pleasure. The Stoics, 
believed in living in harmony with the natural order of the universe, accepting whatever happens as necessary and beyond human control. They're all about cultivating inner peace and virtue through reason, self-discipline, and moral responsibility. So they're not necessarily trying to avoid uh, pain and pursue pleasure. They're trying to achieve peace and tranquility in the middle of all those things. That's like when you hear about someone being very stoic, they're unaffected by their environment, almost like emotionless. And so, and another thing that Paul did, Paul quoted two of their unbelieving, like false, you know, false teachers, if you want to call them that. Um, he says, in him we live and move and, and have our being. Like the, he's quoting, uh, I think one is Epimenides is one, and the other one was Aridus. I'm probably butchering those names. Uh, I don't know those off the tip of my tongue. I had to, had to look them up. But he's quoting poets from their own day. And again, he's, a, he's connecting that to the actual real, real truth. So he's taking an element of truth that's been distorted, and then he's reclaiming that for the gospel. And I think that's also a model for us. And so Paul knew who his audience was. He knew who he was talking to. He knew where he could affirm what was right and, and connect with them. And like he said in Corinthians, to the Jew I became a Jew, to the Greek I became a Greek. And that's, that's something that is uh, a model for us. And then lastly, the sovereignty over salvation, God's sovereignty over salvation should fuel faithful evangelization, not squelch it. So I want to take a look at that. That's in Acts 18, uh, verses 9 through 11. So let's read that real quick. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision and told him, Don't be afraid. Speak out. Don't be silent, for I am with you. For no one will attack and harm you, for many people in the city belong to me. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half, teaching the word of God. So what's so interesting, uh, God says uh, many in the city, uh, many, many people in the city belong to me. God's speaking in a, as if it's already a reality. To him it is. But like Paul's not been there. Like he's talking about people who have yet to place their faith in Jesus. It's not like Paul arrives on the scene and there's like a thriving Christian community there uh, that Paul, I mean, God is saying, basically, here is the guaranteed result. There's already people in this city that are mine. Therefore, continue to faithfully preach. It wasn't, hey, I'm going to save who I'm going to save. So, I mean, just do whatever I'm going to do. Yeah, I don't need you anyway. That wasn't the, the conclusion that God was drawing or Paul was driving. A correct understanding of God's sovereignty should be that wherever we go, we know that God, God's word does not return void. It's going to have its um, determined purpose, and we should just be faithful in proclaiming it, know that it brings God glory, God pleasure. He doesn't need us, but he will use that for his glory. He will use that to bring people uh, to faith, um, even if we don't see it in the immediate term. So God's sovereignty over salvation should fuel faithful evangelization, and it should take the pressure off in a sense of knowing that like, th this isn't, again, up to you and how great of a speaker you are or any of that. It's up to God. God's the one who works these things out. Amen. Yeah. So um, that's all I have for the day. Where am I at on time? Two minutes early, guys. You're welcome. Um, so uh, let me pray for us, and then uh, we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you. Thank you so much that you have proven 
to us that Jesus is the Christ, Lord, that you told us beforehand who he was going to be, what he was going to do, so that when he came, we would recognize who he was, so that we not, would not be deceived. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who confirms these truths in our hearts and conforms us into the image of your Son and guarantees that we remain faithful, Lord. Uh, Lord, I just pray that your Spirit would work on us to be more faithful, uh, more faithful uh, witnesses, more more powerful witnesses for the sake of your name, and Lord, that you would be glorified in and through us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.